Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies of 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko, and Figile Lewati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN Security Council meets to discuss Burundi crisis and concerns over worsening security situation in South Sudan. In economics, U.S. to renew the African Growth and Opportunity Act. And in sports news, Nigeria Football Federation promises huge incentives for the Super Falcons. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Representatives of Burundi's president, Pien Kurunziza, have denied rumors that is still outside the country. This comes after retired army general attempted a coup on Wednesday. The conflict was sparked by Nkurunziza's decision to stand for re-election after serving two terms. The president's spokesperson, Willy Nyamitu, says the Burundian president arrived back in the country last night. President Nkurunziza is in Burundi. People were spreading false news and rumors that either he is uh, in Tanzania or in Uganda or in Kenya, but President Nkurunziza is in Burundi. Nyamidwe says if the Electoral Commission in Burundi decides to postpone the elections, Nkurunziza will abide by that decision. In 2005 and 2010, we had postponed for some days elections and didn't create any problem. So why not? According to the constitution, uh, we can postpone an election uh, if the electoral commission finds it uh, accurate. So this is not a problem. The government can accept this, uh, but uh, it has to be decided by the electoral commission. The first case of the deadly Ebola virus has been detected in Italy. The World Health Organization says the patient is a healthcare worker who had been at an Ebola treatment center in Sierra Leone in West Africa. Stephanie Kutricks reports. WHO said the patient was transferred to hospital at the National Institute for Infectious Diseases in Rome after developing symptoms on the 10th of May. The onset of symptoms reportedly occurred 72 hours after the final leg of the healthcare worker's return journey to Italy from Sierra Leone. WHO confirmed that enough time had passed, which meant that other passengers who had taken the same flight from the West African country were not at risk. More than 300 children, including several under 12 years old, have been released from armed groups in the Central African Republic. They were released following an agreement facilitated by the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF. Three separate ceremonies were held near the town of Bambari, during which the children were released by anti-Balaka militias and the ex-Aleka armed group. UNICEF and partners will be supporting their, in- their reintegration into their communities. 
A meeting of African Union Defence and Security Ministers opens in Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe today. This after defence safety and security experts held meetings to determine the state of readiness for an African military and police standby force. Funding, however, continues to be one of the major challenges to meeting the new December 2015 deadline for the establishment of a force. Yesterday, defence and security chiefs from member states met behind closed doors to make recommendations to be tabled before for the Council of Ministers. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Friday, May the 15th, the 135th day of 2015, with 230 days left in the year. Our top story, the United Nations and its Security Council is unable to confirm which groups are in control of Bujumbura, the capital of Burundi, due to conflicting signals on the ground. The council was briefed in a closed-door session by the UN's envoy for the Great Lakes region, Saeed Jinit, via teleconference from Kenya. In elements to the process, the council president condemned the violent unrest in the country and threatened to respond to acts that continue to threaten peace and security in the country. Shown Bryce Peace reports. There is still no clarity on who controls Burundi with reports of two army factions, one loyal to the coup leaders and another to President Pierre Nkurunziza, whose whereabouts remain unknown. Lithuania's ambassador to the UN, Raimondo Mermukaite, is president of the Council for the month of May. The members of the Security Council condemned the violent unrest in Burundi and specifically condemned those, both those who facilitate violence of any kind against civilians and those who seek to seize power by unlawful means. The members of the Security Council called on all parties not to resort to violence and to prioritize peace and security. Both the Secretary-General and the Council are unable to confirm who is in charge on the ground. While the UN envoy side Jinnit is trying to get back into the country, the SG spokesperson Stefan Dujeric. Those who participate in violence, uh, who participate in ethnic-based violence, will be held, have to be held uh, accountable. Uh, the situation uh, on the ground remains uh, very fluid, uh, as we have uh, seen. Mr. Jinnit currently is in Nairobi. I know he's trying to get back into, uh, into Bujumbura, um, and we're continuing to follow throughout, uh, throughout the day. The East African community and the AU earlier called for a return to constitutional order in Burundi, which was echoed by Council through Ambassador Murmukaita. The members of the Security Council called for the swift return to the rule of law and a holding of credible elections in the spirit of the Arusha agreements. The members of the Security Council reiterated the full support to the efforts of the United Nations uh, Special Envoy Said Jinnit, uh, the African Union and an East African community. The members of the Security Council expressed their intent to respond to violent acts in Burundi that threaten peace and security. The Council President also indicating that they continue to work on a stronger statement, but for now there appears to be very little they can do given the uncertainty that continues on the ground. And while condemning the violence and calling for a return to the rule of law, 
They are also urging credible elections in the spirit of the Arusha Agreement, but will as yet not say whether that indeed means President Nkurunziza should remove himself from the equation or run for a third term. I'm Shervin Bricebees in New York. African leaders are scrambling to deal with the deteriorating situation in Burundi. Some are calling for an African Union peacekeeping force, while others propose a national dialogue. All are calling for cool heads to prevail. Yesterday, Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza, speaking on state radio, condemned what he termed an attempted coup and says he is ready to forgive any soldier who decides to surrender. This follows an announcement yesterday by his former ally and dismissed intelligence chief General Godefroid Nyombare that he was firmly in control of the country. Busichimombe reports. The hard-won peace secured by the Arusha Agreement in 2005 appears to lie in tatters. Burundi's capital, Bujambura, is sealed from the outside world, with no flights allowed to land and all other entry ports closed. Those hiding their homes report heavy gunfire and others are fleeing to neighboring countries to find refuge as the security situation spirals out of control. The continent's representatives are worried. Pan-African Parliament President Bethel Amadi it's time for the African Union to consider sending a, a, a peace uh, a mission with an armed uh, uh, security group to help restore peace and order to that country. We must not allow it to, de- to degenerate. We must send peacekeepers as quickly as possible uh, to Burundi to restore law and order. East African leaders that have been meeting in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania without Nkurunziza have condemned the coup in Burundi and called for a return to constitutional order. They have warned that the region will not accept or stand by if the violence does not stop or indeed escalates. Chairperson of the East African Community and Tanzanian President, Chikaya Kikwete. We don't accept the coup. We condemn it in the strongest terms possible. And we, we, we call upon return to constitutional order in that country. The summit condemns the violence, calls upon all the parties to make sure that the violence stops. The East African community says the conditions are not conducive for elections scheduled for the coming few weeks and has called for a postponement but not beyond the mandate of the current government. South Africa's envoy to the regional meeting was Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. The Constitutional Court has given a view, and there are legal opinions that have been put forward. Now, all that has to be discussed, closely examined uh, with the President and indeed other stakeholders. Now, the period between now and the holding of the elections when they are postponed is going to give all parties space time and an opportunity to address all those issues in a political manner. Protests began in Burundi three weeks ago following the announcement that President Nkurunziza will go for a third term. Amadi says the government must accept the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Government that makes it clear that presidential term limits must be respected. We think that uh, any process that brings about unconstitutional change, be it unconstitutional change in terms of a coup by the military or unconstitutional change in terms of a leader who, while in office, elected under a particular constitution, now wants to amend the constitution to extend and elongate his rule.
that are all unconstitutional changes of government. And it's very clear the position of uh, the Charter. In the meantime, it remains unclear who is really in charge of the capital, Bujambura. And that report by Busi Chimombe. It is 8.12 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The UN's top envoy to South Sudan says her mission is being directly affected by the lack of progress in reaching a peace agreement. After hopes of a peace settlement earlier this year, fighting has resumed in parts of a country between government and opposition forces in complete disregard for a secession of hostilities agreement. Over 2 million people remain displaced in the country, 1.5 million internally and 500,000 as refugees in neighboring countries. Fighting in Unity State has forced most humanitarian agencies and NGOs to evacuate, aggravating an already desperate situation. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Presenting the latest report on South Sudan to the Council, there was little to celebrate. Progress towards peace has been negligible, with reports of widespread human rights abuses, including rape, murder and harassment of civilians, as the head of the UN mission to South Sudan, Ellen Magret Loy, explains. Regarding human rights, I continue to be shocked by the low respect for human life in South Sudan. UNMIS continues to receive reports of gross violation of human rights indicating the unsafe condition faced by civilians in many parts of the country. She warned that the economic situation in the country was also deteriorating as oil revenues drop but expenditure on defense increases. The UN also continues to house in excess of 120,000 people at protection sites around the country while ethnic, tribal and political tensions are also now being felt within those UN compounds. I should also highlight the unsustainability of these protection sites in the longer term. As recent events in Duba have shown, the longer the camps exist in their current form, tensions within the camps increase. We are thus um, experiencing a multitude of challenges in the sites, including crime, gang-related violence and ethnically-based disturbances. But the country's ambassador to the UN, Dr. Francis Madingdeng, continues to argue that the punishment would antagonize the parties rather than bring them a step closer to peace. While the sanctions regime now appears to be in place and about to be operationalized, we still strongly advocate constructive engagement between the international community and the parties, in particular the government. A great deal can be done through positive collaboration, while confrontation carries risks that can be counterproductive. The UN has consistently held that the leadership of the opposing sides in South Sudan have placed their individual aspirations above the needs of the people they are meant to serve, calling the war a man-made political, security and humanitarian crisis. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. Abari, etise, mache, mingabo, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir, 
Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a brand new music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka. The authorities in South Sudan have been shocked and angered by the withdrawal of the United Nations Humanitarian Aid Agency from two strategic regions where fighting is raging between government troops and rebels. The UN agency joins the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC and Doctors Without Borders, which have already pulled out of the troubled region, citing insecurity. James Shimanyula has more. Although the United Nations Humanitarian Agency still operates in eight locations in South Sudan, it has withdrawn its staff in five locations, three in Upper Nile State and two in Unity State, north of Juba. The decision by the United Nations and two other international aid agencies to withdraw from the two troubled states has shocked and angered President Salva Kiir of South Sudan. Speaking to me by telephone from the capital Juba, President Kiir, the spokesman, Ateny Weka Ateny, said. The government actually regrets the decision by the uh, national NGOs to evacuate the areas of United States and uh, Upper Nile. South Sudanese government has been doing its best to ensure that all employees of the international NGOs are safe. How many areas uh, is the government uh, controlling? Unity and Upper Nile and, uh, and Jolie State, with the exception of some pockets. However, President Kiir, the spokesman at Teng Weka Teng, did not name the pockets controlled by the rebels. Insiders in the Juba government say the pockets that he is referring to are all rural areas in Upper Nile and Unity State, with the government controlling urban centers. Explaining why the UN pulled out of Upper Nile and Unity States, the United Nations Humanitarian Chief in South Sudan, Toby Lanza, said. The decision to withdraw aid workers is one of the toughest decisions we take. You know, we have to account for our own people. Unfortunately, since the onset of the crisis in December 2013, We've had over 15 colleagues whom we've lost, and uh, enough is enough. We cannot have non-governmental organization staff or staff of uh, UN agencies in harm's way when the violence uh, reaches the levels which it currently has in parts of the Unity State uh, and indeed uh, in parts of Upper Nile State. In the case of uh, the southern half of Unity State, so south of Bentiu in particular, there were over 300,000 people who would ordinarily have been receiving one form of assistance or another this week, and that's not happening because we've had to withdraw because the violence was too severe. Commenting on the impact that the fighting has caused on the people that have abandoned their homes to take refuge in the bushes or in far-flung areas, Lanza said. Because of the violence, uh, certainly over 100,000 of people will be in the bush or in the swamplands with their own traditional coping mechanisms ever more stretched. 
if somebody gets uh, seriously ill, uh, the person can die. So without medical assistance, without shelter, without the most basic foodstuffs that people need to survive, they don't make it. So it's key for us to get back to those areas just as soon as we can so that we can reopen the clinics so that if a child is sick and needs attending to, there's someone there to help. We want to continue with the distributions of seeds and tools. This is the height of the planting season. This is not the moment when people should be fleeing from their villages or in fear of going to the fields. This is precisely the time when they should be tilling the land and uh, sowing their crops. Lancer says the UN has been holding regular talks with both sides in the South Sudan conflict regarding issues related to security. We're working with the parties to the conflict to make sure that they understand who we are and why we need to be in the field and to seek and gain the reassurances that our work is understood and that our staff will be safe. Once we know that, we will be ready to go back. Putting South Sudan's economy into perspective, Lanza said. What seems to be imminent is this economic collapse. Uh, the, the currency is losing value very, very quickly. We understand that there are no reserves in the central bank. Markets are really severely strained. And this is putting even more hardship on, on the lives of people in urban areas, but of course also in rural areas of the countries. That was the United Nations Humanitarian Chief in South Sudan, Toby Lanza, reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. It is 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 1988. Ethiopian government declares state of emergency in war-torn northern provinces of Eritrea and Tigray. And that was today in history in 1988. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa, Zorba, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. The African Union Commission says a continental standby force will not be fully operational by the December deadline, but it will have some capacity to prevent conflict and maintain peace. African Union Commission Head of Peace Operations, while speaking at the sidelines of an AU defense, peace and security meetings in Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe. Shinganyoka has more. Civil population in desperate need of external intervention to prevent the civil unrest from unraveling into a full-scale war. The African Union Commission says action must be taken to prevent the conflict from escalating. The Commission's Head of Peace Support Operations, Sivuyile Bam. They met in Tanzania specifically to look at that matter. I think the outcomes of those discussions will then determine the way forward in terms of how either the regional organizations, including the AU and the United Nations, need to respond to the Burundi crisis. But yes, everybody sees a need to respond to that crisis, to prevent deaths, destructions of property, and ensure that we come out of this phase when, whenever there is a contestation of power, it actually leads to bloodshed and violence. 
As the conflict rages on in Burundi, military chiefs and defense ministers from AU member states are meeting in Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe. They're assessing the progress in setting up a 5,000-strong African standby force. They acknowledge that the nature of conflict is changing, becoming more complex and transnational. This particular aspect of this meeting is dealing with more what we call the conflict management, putting boots on the ground, your military, your police, your civilians in conflict areas. This tool is what is supposed to do to prevent and to provide protection of civilians when they are being threatened, when people are being killed and murdered in their hundreds. The force has been under discussion for close to 20 years. Delays in setting it up has cost lives. The African Union says the revised December 2015 deadline will see some but not all aspects of the force operationalized. There's a lot that has happened in the regional, in the regional areas. They've undertaken exercises. SADAC has done its exercises. ECOWAS, East Africa Standby Force, ECAS, they've all done exercises. So there is a capability that is there. It's a question of bringing it together and seeing to what extent is, is it able to be able to be deployed in the areas. Even at the time this was first mooted, there was no illusion that it was going to happen overnight given that uh, this is a multilateral institution that we're talking about. The AU does not own resources, just like the United Nations, just like SADAC. The resources are owned by the member states. The basic tenets of the Africa peace and security architecture is to prevent conflict and to ensure it does not spread to other countries or once resolved, the country does not slide back into conflict. As events in Burundi unfold and thousands flee the border into neighboring countries, what many see as a noble idea might have come too late to save their lives. Shingai Nyokai, Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has defended Operation Fiela that has come under scrutiny from human rights activists. The nationwide operation has seen hundreds of undocumented foreign nationals arrested. The president was in the National Council of Provinces for his first oral reply session this year. Members of Parliament also wanted to know what government was doing to repair relations with the Sadiq region following xenophobic attacks and EFF MPs also threw in questions on his private Ngandla residence. Presidential correspondent in Debomokobo has more. Pressure is mounting on the President to release the findings of the Falam Commission that investigated the shooting of minors in Marikana in 2012. He was given the report almost two months ago. Some have speculated that it is being held back because it implicates the police, including its senior leadership. President Jacob Zuma says the report will only be released after careful consideration. I received the report of the Falam Commission and also received a briefing from Judge Ian Falam. This is an important report which needs careful consideration so that findings and the recommendations can be used to ensure that such an incident does not happen again in our country. The report will be released to the public as soon as I have completed processing the findings and recommendations. Members of Parliament also pressed the President on what he was doing to repair relations with neighboring Sadiq countries following attacks on foreign nationals. President Zuma says the continent and the world have understood what happened and that South Africans are not xenophobic. He says he has briefed his peers at the Sadak Extraordinary Summit held in Harare last month and insists he will do so to the AU and the United Nations. Zuma, however, has defended government's Operation Fiela, 
which has been criticized for not only arresting those in the country legally, but also asylum seekers. The president says the operation is targeting criminals. Everybody was saying the drug activities in the country has increased. There are centers that people were saying are known. And those centers are going to be searched. The operation will deal with them. And I'm emphasizing this because I heard that some people were complaining about Operation Fial. The operation is aimed at ensuring that no area in the country remains in the control of crime syndicates and drug dealers. We wish to emphasize that while working to create a hospitable and welcoming atmosphere for foreign nationals, government will also not tolerate illegal migrants. All people should be in the country legally as required in every country. The laws of the country must be respected. President Zuma did not escape questions on when he will pay back the money for non-security upgrades at his Nkandla home. Economic Freedom Fighters members Kasim Vauda and Emmanuel Mtileni sneaked in the questions repeatedly. As much as ANC members don't want to hear about the Nkandla issue, I think this one also is going to be the same thing because... He has been daily dialing, answering the, the Nkanda issue. That is why we insist as to when is the president going to release the report to the public. Thank you. I am going to give the president the space to respond to that, Mr. President. Thank you, Honorable Chair. You are Honorable Member. He seemed to be having something in his head about Nkanda. <laughs> Maybe I can see him outside and deal with the issues because that's not the issue at the moment. President Zuma repeated that the Minister of Police, Natin Tlego, in consultation with Finance Minister Ntlantlanene will determine if he has to pay back any money. The involvement of government in me building my house on the security features is government policy. And there are departments responsible for that. And nobody has found that they did anything wrong. Public protector said this president and his family might have benefited unduly and that he may have to pay back the money but that will be determined by the minister of police in consultation with the minister of finance the problem the eff is jumping the gun their understanding is that there is a a judgment that zuma must pay back the money there is nothing of that nature on youth development president jacob zuma says he has set up a presidential youth task team and says various government departments have programs to alleviate youth unemployment. I am Debumo Kobo for SAPC in Johannesburg. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza congratulates the army police and the nation for resisting a coup. Lead poisoning kills 28 children in central Nigeria's Niger state and South Sudan continues to endure conflict which has pitted government forces against rebels. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Na 
Thank you. And the Assistant Secretary-General and Senior Coordinator for Cholera Response in Haiti, Pedro Medrano Rogers, says a surge, <coughs> I beg your pardon, says a surge in the number of new cholera cases in Haiti has created the risk of a humanitarian crisis. He says that the last three months have seen more than 12,000 new cases of the disease and that the struggling Caribbean country is on course for 50,000 cases this year. Rogers has called for help from the international community, telling Daniel Johnson from UN Radio that Haiti will continue to need outside help for many years after the devastating 2010 earthquake. What we have now is a surge in the number of new cases. In the last three months, we have registered more than 12,000 new cases. So we are extremely concerned because last year we were able to reduce the numbers. But in the last six months, we are having now, on average, more than 5,000 new cases per month. So we are extremely concerned about it. And more important, I think that because of other crises around the world, this is not considered as an emergency by the international community. Our estimate for this year is more than 50,000 new cases, which is, uh, for any country in the world, would be considered certainly as a humanitarian crisis. And what exactly has gone wrong, do you think? First of all, Haiti has a very weak coverage in water and sanitation. It's the poorest country in the region, a very weak health and uh, water and sanitation infrastructure. On average, it's perhaps uh, 50% of the population may have access to some kind of uh, sanitation or 50% access to uh, safe drinking water. So if we compare this with the rest of the region, the rest of the region, Latin America and the Caribbean, they have uh, roughly about 90% coverage. So there's a huge gap in terms of what Haiti has in terms of coverage and the rest of the region. Secondly, I think that uh, the earthquake five years ago destroyed completely the infrastructure of the country. So in the midst of this, we have this current epidemic that so far is not necessarily a priority for the international community. So lack of resources, less partners on the ground, and a very weak infrastructure, all these elements are the main reason why we have this surge in the cholera outbreak and in the increased number of cases we have now. There is an effort, isn't there, to get uh, the government on board, understanding yeah, that, but, uh, uh, that means and resources are scarce, is there nothing else that could be actioned on more quickly to help all of these people? We need to keep in mind that Haiti is the poorest country of the whole region. And it is not uh, to be expected that in less than five years all the problems that the country is suffering from will be resolved. And there was immediately after the earthquake a massive support from the national community. Most of these resources went to for recovery, reconstruction, and to new houses. And I think that this is something that uh, has really helped. As of now, we have a strategy. It's a two-track approach. We need to be able to treat the new cases. And at the same time, we need to build the infrastructure for the future. So what we're saying is what we need now, resources to deal with the emergency, with the new cases, with 30,000 new cases that most probably we'll have this year. But at the same time, we need to invest in infrastructure. And this will take time. It cannot be expected that in five years, even ten years, we will have the same level of coverage than the rest of the Latin American region. And that was the Assistant Secretary General and Senior Coordinator for Cholera Response in Haiti, Pedro Medrano Rogers. And he was speaking to Daniel Johnson from UN Radio.
It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's Department of Mineral Resources says it cannot, at this stage, disclose what steps it will be taking to curb job losses in the country's mining industry. This follows announcements by major mining houses that they are planning to retrench thousands of workers in the wake of a drop in commodities and rising wage demands. At a press briefing held yesterday, Mineral Resources Minister Nwako Ramachlodi said he has tasked a subcommittee to deal with the matter. Selina Dobong has more. Last week, the world's third largest platinum producer, Lonmin, which operates in South Africa, announced its intention to cut 3,500 jobs at its mines. The company posted a first half-year loss of 116 million U.S. dollars this year, compared to about 275 million dollars in early years. Other giant mining houses, including Anglo Gold, also made public their plans to do the same. Minister Ramathodi says inasmuch as he is alarmed by these developments, due process must be followed before the department discloses exactly what measures it will take to intervene. We are in a situation where under section 52 of the Mineral Resources Act, whatever a company wants to retrench, they then put in a formal notice to the department and we begin the process of engagement with the particular license holder. And the aim of this engagement is to seek to find alternatives to retrenchment, in other words, to prevent job losses. Where we, we can't find any other alternative, then we must then address the issues, what will happen to those employees who are to exit the system of formal employment. So we've got a stream that deals with sustainable mining, and that is the unit that has been meeting to see what can be done to report back to us as principals Major trade unions representing mine workers, including the National Union of Mine Workers and the Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union, have accused employers of always threatening to retrench workers closer to wage negotiation season, an accusation which employers have since refuted. Secretary General of the National Union of Mine Workers, Chimani Mundwedi, elaborates. Our view is that the employer... Dating back from 2010 to 2009, I can give specifics of the very strategy that they have applied today in relation to them putting every time when we are coming closer to negotiations and they are, they are, they are giving us notices of, of attention. I can give specifics in terms of it's their strategy. And that strategy is not working. Issue of the commodity price, whether it's high or down, to our members it does not make sense because even if it's high or down, Members are subjected to the same exploiting conditions. Meanwhile, Ramathodi put out a strong warning against mining houses who have not complied with the mining charter, which sought to assess reporting, ownership and housing and living conditions in the country's mines. He says 79% of mining companies have complied with the government target of having a 26% stake of operations owned by blacks, but 45% of companies had not improved living conditions for its workers. South African companies are 
required to reach at least 26% black ownership under the government's policy of black economic empowerment designed to address the inequalities of the apartheid system that ended in 1994. Mining companies in South Africa have been scrambling for years to meet the targets. There are also mining houses who have not submitted relevant information on these. Ramaslodi says the mining rights of those companies could be revoked should they fail to comply. What you do, you issue a notice, and we have issued notices before with regard to certain things. You issue a notice and then give the mine right holder an opportunity to remedy the situation. That is our law. And then failure to remedy that, you then issue the last resort, which is withdrawal or suspension of a mining License. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ndobong in Johannesburg. Farmers, policy makers and experts in agriculture have signed a communique aimed at championing the just-launched Africa Climate Smart Agriculture CSA Alliance. The signing took place in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia at the end of a three-day meeting yesterday. The communique seeks to support implementation and coordination of various policies being agreed upon by all stakeholders in the agricultural sector. To find out more on this, our correspondent George Mango spoke to NEPA Director of Programs, Estherine Fotabong in Addis Ababa. The main objective is to put together a, a, a forum that brings together different actors um, um, working the issue of climate smart agriculture. Um, we have, as you know, um, agriculture is one of the main um, drivers and sectors for economic development in the continent. It employs, uh, some say, about 80% of our people. Um, so it's a, it's a critical um, sector for the continent. But we also know that we, we are having this phenomenon of climate change, climate variability, and it's impacting on the agricultural sector. So we, we, we are hearing from the farmers, um, you know, changing seasons that affect, you know, well, changing weather patterns that affect their, their planting season. Um, they need to have new seeds that can adapt to the, you know, changing climatic conditions and so on. And it's, sometimes this changes actually impact on their income and livelihood. What is it that you are doing so that at least whatsoever is being discussed here is also taken by the people on the ground for a better Africa? Nepal is doing a lot of work um, um, at different levels. But uh, yeah, per- sometimes perception can be seen as reality. And so we, as Nepal, we need to address that communication question so that what we're doing on the ground can be uh, seen. But more importantly, the issue of climate agriculture and why we launched this program is to ensure that we don't have the climate discussion just at the policy level, international level, but support smallholder farmers on the ground. And to do this, of course, as NEPED, we are not in all the countries. And that's not our role to go and start, you know, working the farms on the field. But we can broker partnerships. And that's what we've done by establishing this NEPED. INGO Alliance. Basically, we identified 
um, these NGOs that have significant footprint on the ground in terms of programs. And we have gone into partnership with them so that through their programs and through the support that we can leverage, they can help us to reach 6 million household farms um, to be able to contribute to the 25 million um, household by 2025 targets that's in the Malabo decisions. The Maputo declaration where governments were aged or leaders in Africa were aged to at least you know, contribute 10% of the budget towards agriculture. That was in 2003, now it's 2015. Any tangible achievements that have been taken on board by these leaders as NEPAD, your assessment? I think we are making progress. Um, one, I think, just that political decision to say they want to put a target because, you know, politicians would like to put targets on things that they can be held responsible for. So for the governments to have that courage to put a target that they can be held accountable, I think is already something that we have to appreciate and acknowledge. It's, it's a progressive approach. Now, coming on the ground, uh, I think there are two issues. We, we are seeing a, a trend, a positive trend, towards increased budget allocation to the agricultural sector. And I think that is very important. Because the 10%, we are not going to have all the member states allocating 10% of their budget to agriculture. If, for instance, a country, agriculture is contributing 3% of their GDP, you don't expect them to put 10% of their GDP you know, allocation to that sector. So I think we need to interpret, you know, this 10% target in the CADAP framework. But the good news for, for us as Nepal, we think, is, is that progressive thing we are seeing in terms of the high-level appreciation by our heads of state of the importance of agriculture in um, the continent, in their countries and for the continent as a whole. The aspect of uh, women empowerment or youth empowerment remains one of the crucial issues or topics that do come out whenever there are these kind of meetings. What is it that uh, you are doing as NEPAD in line with uh, the uh, CSA so that youths or women are part and parcel of this development because they are the future of Africa? When we talk about climate smart agriculture, for me, the key element of defining that smart is having policies and programs that are supportive of women and youth participation in the sector. So it's not just about technical practices, it's not about technology and you can, you can have modern and new technologies, you can have additional finances but if they don't cater to the challenges that women have in terms of access to, to financing and this technology and if they're not designed so that women can use them then I don't think we can say they are climate smart. With regard to the youth, I think that's where we have the biggest challenge because we're already starting from a position where the youth are first not interested because agriculture as practiced today in the continent um, is not seen as uh, something lucrative enough for them. And that was NEPA Director of Programs, Estherine Fotabong, speaking to our correspondent, George Mahango, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Luhuku.
Thanks for that introduction, Balungile. The United States Senate has voted by 97 to 1 to renew the African Growth and Opportunity Act, but with the strict terms for South Africa. South Africa has welcomed the passage of the bill and says it's studying the provisions which affect the country. Agoa, as it's known, has given Sub-Saharan Africa preferential access to U.S. markets, but some U.S. senators have argued that South Africa should not be included in a renewal of the act, considering that South Africa has set up its own trade barriers with U.S. chicken. When the new act is passed, it will initiate an immediate review of South Africa's membership of AGOA. Senior International Advisor for Africa at Govington and a Berling Law Firm in Washington, Earl Gust, says he doubts that this means the U.S. will exclude South Africa from AGOA. The U.S. wants, number one, to maintain its strong relationship with South Africa. Number two, it wants to make sure uh, that no harm is done here to the South African economy. And number three, it doesn't want to jeopardize any jobs in South Africa. Having said that, it wants to achieve equal treatment, fair treatment for American companies. And hopefully at the end of it, we emerge with a commercial relationship that is truly win-win. Grain South Africa has warned government that the country will experience severe shortages if it goes ahead with its land reform policy. Grain SA says a food shedding may be next if government persists with controversial proposals. It says commercial farmers are not against the land reform but are looking at ensuring food security. The organization has rejected rural development and land reform minister Kuki Lenguinta's 50-50 land ownership plans, saying it is against government policy as spelt out in the National Development Plan. Grain SA says the plan will be detrimental to the poor and the first need in South Africa is not land but food. International renewable energy expert Silam Abu Amara says more players are needed in the market to help solve South Africa's electricity problems. He was speaking on the sidelines of the Africa Utility Conference in the mother city of Cape Town. Amara says South Africa should aim for a 50% solar and wind energy injection into the electricity. Renewable energy would be enabling South Africa to solve the low shading, but for South Africa it needs to be more aggressive in implementation, including allowing households to have rooftop solars to enable people to sail to the grid and buy to the grid. Like go in the past of other emerging markets like Turkey, like in Germany, like in Spain, who has 30, 40, 50 percent penetration of, of renewable energy. For South Africa, that's the path to go. The wage gap between Zimbabwe's highest and lowest paid employees is slightly above 4,000%, according to a survey conducted by one of Zimbabwe's leading employment consultant firms, Industrial Psychology Consultants. Company directors make at least 40 times more than their general hands. Analyzing the findings, IPC says without a doubt, there should be differences in salaries across different employment levels. London Copper is set to close flat for a second week as worries over sluggish demand are offset by hopes of revival in China's struggling poverty sector later in the year. China's interest rate cut at the weekend is the latest in a string of measures to show up a struggling property sector that has dragged on economic growth and demand for metals. The US dollar, 1185 South African Rand, 955 Botswana Pula, 720 in Zambia, 065 British pound, 89 euro, gold 1219 dollars, platinum 1154 dollars an ounce, brand crude oil, 66 dollars, 65 cents a barrel. I'm Tabi with this economic update. Free linguistics, or rather, Lingwati, is standing up with a sport.
אפדייט. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Now, sports update this hour, we're starting off with football news. Nigeria Football Federation, the NFF president, Amu Jupinik, will hand over the sum of 400,000 U.S. dollars to the Super Falcon squad if they reach the final of this summer's FIFA Women's World Cup finals in Canada. Pinnick says if they get to the quarterfinals of the World Cup, they will get 50,000 U.S. dollars. A sport in the semifinals will earn them 100,000 U.S. dollars. And if they get to the final, they will pocket a sum of 250,000 U.S. dollars. The Super Falcons have made the last eight of the global championship once when victories over North Korea and Denmark saw the team in the quarterfinals in the United States of America in 1999. But a squad led by Florence Omagbemi lost out at that stage between 4-3 after extra time by Brazil. The Falcons, who have been training in Abuja since last month following a 9-1 aggregate thumping of Mali in the only qualifying round for the women's football tournament of the All-Africa Games, will depart Nigeria on Tuesday for a 16-day training camp in Toronto ahead of the 7th FIFA Women's World Cup Finals. And a second string Bafana Bafana side played to a goalless draw against Lesotho in a friendly in Maseru. The two countries will play in another friendly at the same venue on Saturday. This is in preparation of Bafana Bafana's participation in the Kosafa Cup. South Africa's opening Kosafa Cup match is against Botswana on the 24th of this month. On to rugby news. South African rugby side coach Johan Ackerman says he was tempted to make more changes to his team, especially in the front row, but chose to stick to the same props and a hooker that had started in the win against the Highlanders. There are three more changes in the back line, with Favre Clark and Elton Yankees being the preferred halfbacks to start, while Lionel Mapowe returns from injury and will start at wing with Ruan Kombrick swapping wings in place of Cockney's Kosan for the Lions Super Rugby encounter against the Brumbies at Emirates Airline Park on Saturday. Akamen says the return of Mapuwe into the team will give them plenty of energy and leadership in the back line and that he preferred playing Mapuwe on the wing rather than at the center. Yeah, I think you know it was a tough decision because um, Lionel and uh, Harold and Howard as exceptional uh, campaign so far especially on tour where those three you know really did well as a combination um, but we know that uh, Lionel, you know, is um, returning, and I think um, you know he'll be good for us on the wing. He's strong, and um, and I think uh, therefore it's good to have him back. And he's also a leader and a guy that gives a lot of positive energy. And we can always, you know, use him in that 13 position if we need to. And finally, with golf news, Trevor Fisher leads into the second round of the Open de España at El Prat near Barcelona. The South African is seven under par. After an opening 65, one stroke clear of the field, while pre-event favorite Sergio Garcia will have to battle to make it to the weekend. That's your sport news this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN Security Council meets to discuss Burundi crisis and concerns over worsening security situation in South Sudan. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for this week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Kumuzora Magaza, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Fela Kuti with a track titled Shakara. song for them. We just sing them like this. We go say Say, my dear, I like you. She goes, say, you like you? Who you like? Come on, Jari. Hmm. Look at this man. Where you come from, sir? Hmm. Hmm. I be me and you. Not as me, oh. Ah. You see, she won't do. 
Now Shakara, they call like Shakara Loji. They get a song for them. They sing them like this. They go say, Oh, baby, people don't think that 